Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Can you hear me well? I can. Yeah, I can hear you well. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I'm Jessica Khazrik. Uh, I'm an artist, uh, writer, and producer. And I work across different fields and disciplines from machine learning to ecotoxicology and the history of science and linguistics. Wow. <laughs> and what mediums do you work in? Uh, also, it depends on the project, but I usually work mostly in performance sound and uh, obviously writing. Um, I also, I've been also active usually within uh, different music scenes, like from doing album art to also producing my own visual art in different um, contexts, from online to museums, galleries, um, books. So, perhaps we could start by speaking about this uh, exhibition that you recently had at the Times Museum in China. Let's talk about the weather. This seems extra pertinent this summer, as I feel like the <laughs> weather has been kind of all over the place across the globe. It's like mm -hmm. we've had the hottest summer we've ever had here. Yeah, we've had a very cold summer in Beirut. Like it was raining and thunderstorms in the end of July and June, which never happens. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so the work I was showing there um, basically consists of a project that's called the Blue Barrel Group, which I started in 2013. While I was reinvestigating a, a toxic waste trade that was sent from Italy to Lebanon uh, in 1987 and thrown around uh, three minutes away from my parents' house, the house where I grew up. So basically I was showing three works from this project and these works always change whenever shown. So some of them I was like two of the projects I was showing them for the first time one of them for the second time I always try to revisit the project rather than showing it in a static way so it's always evolving and it's also similar to the mechanisms of how waste and trash work so in my readings of waste, I'm very much interested in thinking about how the refuse, the things which are thrown outside of space and also very much outside of history and stories, trash, um, is like a, a kind of matter that's very visibly and often fast, like in a very fast way, change, changing in front of your eyes. So I'm very much interested in seeing uh, and like investigating how this matter is usually put in an invisible place or buried up. So I was showing a, uh, um, a work made from around 140 images called Waste Eats Your Histories, um, which is basically images that I found in 2015, at the end of 2014, more of, uh, in the lab of an ecotoxicologist and herbal pharmacologist uh, who was as assigned by the government as one of the official investigators of the toxic waste trade. Um, and interestingly, the 
he was one of the three investigators and all of the investigators were scientists, which is also for me um, very much telling of uh, how organization of knowledge works in Lebanon, because usually um, you would have scientists as expert witnesses in cases like that, rather than being the investigators. So they were searching for the ways, locating them, taking samples, testing them. Yeah, so the case was forcefully closed uh, in 1995 when Dr. Pierre Manichef, this ecotoxicologist and herbal pharmacologist, was detained and accused of being a false witness. So he basically, like, they assigned a new prosecutor who told him, who used, like, the evidence that he had produced against his claims. He said, like, when I see that all of the uh, scientific reports were written uh, or signed by you, and when I see that all of the images around the case were taken by you, and uh, all of the scientific tests were commissioned by you, how can I not uh, believe at this point that you haven't fabricated all of the case yourself or that you haven't brought in the waste yourself? So basically he was saying that according to the Lebanese jurisprudential notion of truth, all scientific uh, reports uh, and photographs have no power to attest to truth that, and they are fabricated by someone. So he was basically like granting the subjectivity that is of, often denuded from the work of scientists and for instance more of like in the western uh, schema of uh, like the modern scientific method and like using it against him. And then I've, I've been very much interested in um, the figure of the false witness because I saw, I then remembered that in several legal cases in Lebanon, uh, many, um, and like many people who were basically advancing a voice which was not very much part of the hegemony in Lebanon, were completely silenced by just being accused of being a false witness. So, um, so one of the things that this work asks is, what is a false witness? Is it a witness who saw too much, or someone who is not part of the let's say, how knowledge is organized uh, within that time and that place. So, when I'm usually researching something, I do a lot of field work and I also interview um, different people who were uh, part of, who were witnesses in different ways or false witnesses to, to the happening that I'm investigating. So, I was meeting with the different scientists who wrote on the project. And it turned out that only one of the three scientists is still alive. And this was not Pierre Marichal. But I was able to find his family. And so I visited them in their house and we were talking for like an hour. They were telling me that, you know, that he was in a way somehow sure that someone would later investigate the case and uh, that they're very happy that someone is working on that. And especially that I have also this kind of personal relationship with it because it was one of the stories that I somehow grew up hearing about. And in a way, the whole image and identity of the place, it was found in a quarry next to my house, was in a way very much related to, to this toxic waste field, however, in a very mysterious way. So anyhow, we were talking and then they told me, do you want to see images uh, around the case? I'm like, of course. So they're like, come. So they took me to this um, sunroom, which was actually that he had turned into his lab. So it was his domestic lab for the last few years of his life. 
because also he had like two pharmacies and they were both bombarded once by an owner of an illegal quarry another time by like one of the militias during the civil war because of his work around the environment so they told me yeah he took a lot of photographs just opened this closet there are like a lot of images in there so basically i opened a closet and literally around like 100 200 images fall on my head so basically i then found out that uh, this ecotoxicologist dr pierre Manchef, has been taking over 20,000 images from the uh, 1950s, like the mid-1950s until early 2000s of waste and the spaces they inhabit in Lebanon, as in streets, quarries, forests, rivers. And at the same time, he was also like, he was an her- a herbal pharmacologist, so he would make a lot of different kinds of medicine from local plants. So he mainly took two kinds of images, like images of flowers uh, and plants who grew, that grew in the area. And the other major part of this whole compendium is photos of waste. And uh, what I did in this iteration at the Times Museum is that um, I started recently working on a neural network uh, that I feed these images. And basically what I'm doing is I'm looking at how waste is matter outside of classification. So from my writings on what trash is, somehow the quality of waste, I noticed that in the Lebanese language, the word for waste, nifayat, comes from the verb nafa, which has a dual meaning. The first meaning is to to deny, to negate, for instance, that something didn't happen. And the second is to exile. Um, It's interesting that I'm saying the first and the second because I still don't know which one, in which sense the word is most commonly used. So basically from this, we could somehow say that waste is uh, exiled matter that uh, exile the space they inhabit, somehow make it out of space, which is something that I'm adopting from Mary Douglas, uh, an anthropologist from, who was very much active in the 60s uh, in Britain. And it's like exiled and denied matter that deny living from a place by making it, making it uninhabitable or toxic. I was very much interested in looking into how toxicity is uh, like toxic material is very pervasive in its movement. And in Lebanon, it's, these things have been super sensitive because um, if you look, for instance, at the plan of like the underground water channels, like the groundwater in Lebanon, they're very much uh, related in a way. It's very, so it's very easy to, if one space was uh, contaminated, it can, it can spread in a very fast way, you know? Uh, things are very much interrelated. So what I did is that I started training the neural network on, for instance, like in every image I would, because of the stories that I have collected around the images, let's say I'm showing an image where there is a lake, where toxic wastes were like dumped, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are trees. So basically I would, uh, I would, I would first allocate that the lake is the place where toxic material was dumped. So, and there's another image where um, barrels of toxic waste were thrown into the sea. So I would point out the sea. So what happens later is that the neural network would, whenever it sees something that's like water, it would think of it as toxic. 
So in the end, what would happen is that in a way, all of the environment is intoxicated. So this is the first part. Um, so having just read chapter zero of your novel, Horizon 2000, I know that you also have some speculations about the, the future of waste, or this is kind of a, a, a speculative fiction set in the future where it seems that managing waste is kind of an important quotidian action. Not that it's not now, but it kind of draws attention to this management of of waste and toxicity. So the the upcoming novel also deals with um, not only toxicity and somehow like the governance of the refuse, but also uh, machine learning. So in this like in this previous work, uh, this previous iteration of waste, it's your histories. I was very much interested in playing with the irrational rationalization, which is found within um, current designs of like machine learning and neural networks. And to use this in a way, um, rather like not in a way that would organize, but would also show how easily chaotic things could be. So in the novel, there's also this, this trope that I'm uh, exploring. So in the novel, I'm, it's basically set in the near future. It starts in Beirut in 2023. Uh, in Lebanon, there's, and in many Middle Eastern countries, there's a very corrupt uh, legal system called the kafala which basically allows the exploitation of migrant domestic workers, mainly from Africa and Southeast Asia. For um, So basically make it legal to, to use very exploitative modes of work with domestic workers and it renders domestic work really cheap. I've been very much thinking of also the economies of uh, servitude, like service, how, how they've been in a way hidden or how how they have survived uh, after the abolition of slavery. And in Lebanon, you see a lot of super exploitative everyday interactions that in a way remind you a lot of like a, uh, of the remnants of this slavery. So, and there's been recently in the f last few years, an amazing social movement and a lot of work by domestic workers crit critiquing the whole system itself. So uh, what I'm doing within like the novel is that uh, in 2023, there has been a, a ban on the import of uh, of domestic work in in Lebanon. So there should be there was like there were all of these different uh, alternatives in a way that I'm imagining that were proposed. It starts with a family that when the domestic worker leaves the house and she had left not because of the ban, but because of a common exploitation that happens. Like the parents, what they do is that they stop taking the girl to school, their daughter. And so basically I'm looking into how this whole uh, violence is reproduced in a way where the parents, they're like overworking, so they don't have time anymore to take care of their house. So how they basically relegate this to another person. And the main character somehow of the novel is Futat, the seven-year-old girl who, who lives in that house, and also a mechanical housekeeper who's called Awa. 
So what happens is that after a while, there is a mechanical housekeeper that is like a new product. And I'm working a lot on the objectification that is uh, in a way that follows uh, different strands of labor that is sold within Lebanon, basically. Um, and it arrives to the house. And there is something that basically changes the circuit of how things flow within this mechanical housekeeper, who's greatly trained by media that are found on the internet. And this error happens because of how uh, the electric cables in Lebanon are, um, are channeled together. Um, I recently found out that in Lebanon, where don't have 24-7 electricity, which we had like prior to the Lebanese civil war. <clears throat> because there's like this big economy, which privatized economy, which was introduced in Lebanon during the beginning of the civil war, when electricity was often cut, which happens in many battlefields in a way that people are denuded of like, electricity and you have to find different alternatives. But basically there is this thing that we call the motor, the motor, which is like, it's like an electricity generator. So up until now, and depending on where you are, there are usually around three to 12 hour electricity cuts during the day. But in many places, like in nearly everywhere, you could uh, subscribe to the motor. <laughs> so basically it's like um, in every town, there are like different electricity providers who would buy this huge electricity generator and people would uh, subscribe to them, uh, to this generator. So you'd have coverage when the government cuts the electricity. And it's a huge monopoly. Like in some places you could pay around $120 a month just so you have 24 hour electricity. So I'm basically looking into how this whole economy, this neoliberal economy of privatization and its relationship to governance in a way uh, is pervading into everyday life. But from that, um, I'm doing this with uh, looking through like the different circulation of media. So from here, like the, there's again, this neural network. And so it starts this way, but then we have like, there are different characters from different times. Like for instance, one of the characters in the novel is um, Jabir Ben-Hayan, who was a Abbasid scientist, like from, from the Abbasid era, which went from the 8th to the 13th century, and who had a similar notion to, uh, to somehow some strands of AI or more of the popular myths around artificial intelligence, which he called Tequin. So he's someone who worked with cryptography, uh, also the, the synthesis of artificial life and alchemy. So from here we have all of these things that anyway go back that are related to my practice in general. So, so like this scientist is in a way resurrected. Um, Futat, who's seven years old, but who doesn't act at all like a kid is also morphed with several things. So um, so then you have this whole transformation and circulation, which is also a common theme within the novel. I can't wait to read the rest of it. <laughs> it's like so um, terrifying how like accurate it seems. Um, but also and very fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm basically like very much interested in looking into um, the source of things, the different sources of things, 
Like for instance, there's a lot of work around what to do with the byproduct of, you know, waste. But I think that the word which speaks a lot in the name of equality is very much constructed on an unequal order. Basically how how work is globally distributed where there are certain jobs, the jobs that are usually that usually deal with the refused matter or the jobs that are in a way reproductive labor, you know, that make sure that things as if remain the same, you know, like, oh, things should remain clean, you know, things should not change. It just makes sure that the order remains as is, while the order, in my opinion, is very toxic. Mm-hmm. How these works are, you know, given to play- people from certain places in the world. So, so I'm basically looking into the distribution of labor, which is also something that is a lot in discussion today within like, you know, this whole endless stream of automation and how people see that this is coming. Often, like, there's this general consensus that we're really, we're really, like, approaching a place where labor will become automated, you know, while this will never fully happen. So I think that these two things are very much related. How work is globally distributed, where there are certain jobs, the jobs that are usually, that usually deal with the refused matter, or the jobs that are in a way reproductive labor, you know, that make sure that things as if remain the same, you know, like, oh, things should remain clean, you know, things should not change. It just makes sure that the order remains as is, while the order, in my opinion, is very toxic. Mm-hmm. How these works are, you know, given to play people from certain places in the world. So, so I'm basically looking into, like, the distribution of labor, which is also something that is a lot in discussion today within, like, you know, this whole endless stream of automation and how people see that this is coming Often, like, there's this general consensus that we're really, we're really, like, approaching a place where labor will become automated, you know, while this will never fully happen. So I think that these two things are very much related. Okay, so speaking of labor, um, I, we met under the context of uh, your project, which is called My Communication is Not Work. Um, working with language and computation and kind of um, automation of, of speech and the voice. So I'm interested uh, to hear more about how you became interested in the relationship between voice, language, technology, work, politics, um, and how and how you kind of explore these. Yeah, I um, I was like from since, like from from since I was a kid, I was very much uh, in a way obsessed with like telephones, with uh, also like when I was, I remember when I was 10, I discovered the speech to, te- to text, the text to speech, sorry, software within like Microsoft, you know, that was embedded in there. And, like for instance, this was one of the things that I used to do. And this has led me in a way to, to studying, I studied linguistics and theater as for my undergraduate study. And though I was always interested in literature, but I was very much interested in the given that language could be seen as a science, you know, the science of language, because also science is one of the things that greatly fascinated me. This work, my communication is not work, greatly deals with the premise uh, that is being advanced by different form of like. Uh, big data and software companies who are working around um, 
different machine learning services that are related to the voice. Basically, they're saying that uh, so far in, in like the technological power that we have today, if you just have around two minutes of speech by anyone, they have the power to replicate the voice. And this is in a way being seen as something that's very new related to our time. So I saw that, like I found out while researching that different experiments like this uh, 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 were done like in the 70s, for instance, there's this record called The Altered Speech of Nixon, where from just taking the five minute speech of Nixon denying his uh, involvement with the Watergate incident, uh, there was this, this record producer who, who basically was also behind like one of the earliest records with like field recording called Environments. He basically with around like 140 slices, he, he changed completely. He said the opposite. He made this record with the opposite of what Nixon was saying. Or he was saying that I'm completely in with this. I am responsible for that. So I'm, here you have again, you know, the false um, and for instance, like one of the companies which is advocating this premise is called Liarbird. And what they did is that uh, around like three years ago, they also like um, released videos of different presidents, mainly like the US presidents, saying things that are the opposite of what they tend to advocate. Um, so I'm very much interested in this relationship between wars and government. But basically, uh, when we look at this premise, it somehow says that in a way the voice is within our current technological realities, uh, an impossible biometric, you know? It's that thing which could be easily reproduced. So there is this technological falsification that is circulating around the voice. Well, if you look, for instance, at um, the history and the, one of the main premises of uh, politics within like Greek philosophy and then to like Western philosophy. It's that we are political because because we can speak, you know, because of phonos, because of the voice. So in this performance, I'm I'm questioning this premise, you know, and this incoming uh, future, which I also think is part of our present. It's not just uh, upcoming. Where in a way that thing, I don't know if it's a thing or if it's an object of desire and it's which is at the same time very material and also very aerial and very uh, semantic and also the thing which is somehow left outside of writing of course is uh is something that could be easily reproduced by technology and has no power to attest to truth so what happens of politics within this thing you know Going back to the project, to the Blue Barrel Grove, and uh, finding about the work of the psychotoxicologist and herbal pharmacologist, Dr. Pierre Maichev, um, I started working under uh, the name, sometimes, of the Society of False Witnesses. So, um, this project is also uh, made under this name. And, like in some cases, the Society of False Witnesses is unknown who is the society, in some cases, like in different performances, the site of false witnesses is the audience, or it's the audience and me. So I'm really interested in the technological falsification that in a way is appearing so, so in this Horizon 2000, language is also kind of beginning to be forgotten. 
So I wonder if there's something uh, in which like language or communication is also becoming trash or toxicity. Um, or, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, this is one of the things which I'm in a way uh, stuck with <laughs> right now, thinking of whether in a way um, language altogether becomes uh, oh, like obsolescent. <laughs> within the novel, like I'm now more towards the end. Yeah, but um, so basically, um, this is something that I'm still really wrapping my mind around, but there's something else within how I feel we're currently using language that I've been studying, which in a way I call the metadatification of discourse, which also relates to what we were talking about before around the voice. So I think it's not that only, for instance, the architecture of different um, computational like software is very much based around metadata, which is also hard to encrypt. It's super hard to encrypt metadata. You know, it's that thing, it's this information, this data that um, machines need to communicate with each other. But I feel that in a way, a lot of what we're doing today, you know, uh, has been moving a lot into the meta aspect of things. And this is something that many philosophers started working on from the mid um, 20th century. However, um, not more of uh, from what I found and not more of the prospect of language itself. Uh, and uh, it basically like I've been observing how a lot of our relations and our current imaginaries uh, on the word have been circulating more around uh, relations of, for instance, who is speaking when and where rather than what is being said and i feel like this crisis of, of the imagination that we live in is uh is very much forgetting content itself you know it's as if content becomes secondary so this is somehow like the metadatification of this course where language is no longer in a way about content but about form and i personally do not believe that you could um completely separate between form and content so, um, for instance, I uh, organized a talk like in April around this um, called that there is counter-information, art, cryptography and the metadatification of discourse, uh, which was in April at uh, Sans Pompidou in France in collaboration with the uh, Institute of Research and Innovation that's based at Pompidou. So basically like one of the things that I'm thinking of in terms of this like very pervasive physical governance, you know, and content governance in a way, because there's a lot of censorship that is gaining track also very fast in, uh, in many places in the world and a lot in, in the region and in the region and in Lebanon. So in a way, one of the ways that you could counter censorship is through encryption, you know, through like cryptography. So I feel like after World War II, with the advent of cryptanalysis, where cryptanalysis, where cryptography became very much mechanized, um, uh, the hard history of cryptography itself, which was very much around creating a private language that is untranslatable, that cannot be easily deciphered, uh, has been in a way forgotten. So I'm very much interested in rethinking uh, 
of this history and also like what is crypto power today and also like uh, we have I feel like a crypto frenzy you know when like the crypto like what is the crypto you know like the crypto is even gaining an economic power so I'm still very much thinking of like the future of language itself it's still something that I haven't in a way wrapped my mind uh, I totally agree I actually met someone yesterday who was leaving to China to teach English to computer science, um, like graduate students, but not about the content. It's so that they could understand the syntax of the computer because so much of that language is written in English. And I just thought like, this is so strange and fascinating that now humans are trying to really, I mean, it's not English. They're trying to learn the language of the machine and to learn the language mm -hmm. of, of the computer and how we're, we are actually adapting to be more intelligible to the machine. Mm -hmm. So yeah. do you think that this is a, kind of a direction that we're moving towards? Yeah. I mean... There's already a lot of things that we do that we don't know exist, like because you know machines, computers, like computation is very much based on the act of reading. Within like our, um, uh, let's say our performance using our computers, there are a lot of things that are inscribed that cannot also be read by us. For instance, like there's a lot of different projects uh, related around like social physics now and basically like different strands, new strands of behaviorism made from neural networks that basically try to conclude certain things about someone's character or, or psychology by just uh, working with like, uh, you know, recording how you use your cursor on your computer, which is something that you wouldn't imagine is being transmitted to, let's say, a platform that you are using. You know, like your cursor usage is being sold as data, but you cannot read that. And at the same time, for instance, like I grew up in Lebanon, which is a place that is very multilingual. And it's a, a place where there's, in my opinion, like a sort of linguistic insecurity and schizophrenia. Because like since its uh, birth as a nation state, the Lebanese uh, nation state has been always like very multilingual. And it's always very transnational, you know, like its economy is very much based on tourism and on also like a big part of the population has always been moving outside of the country in a way somehow exiled because of the different political tensions that has existed in the place and what happened is that for instance my generation like the people who grew up in the 90s you depending on the class that they come from and their educational background but usually like many people within the new generation uh, speak for instance English all the time more than Arabic you know or there are a lot of people even who cannot write anymore like they cannot write an email in Arabic you know and this is greatly due to globalization of media you know like you grow up watching a lot of uh, like for instance American series music you know so like also using your computer very few people from Lebanon change the language, you know, it really depends on these different relations. But what's happening really that there is some sort of, as if from one side you have like this um, uh, 
<clears throat> you have things are being transformed into this standardized order that is you need a lot of standardization for things to become more interoperable but i think also the strand of standardization that we are most commonly seeing today can be made differently standardization can be good but could also could be very harmful um on one side you have that on the other side you have like different kinds of you know like sub languages that are being born that morph in a way the old with what's seen as new and more pervasive so i think it's 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 very important to think of what is being made readable and non-readable to humans uh, looking at how language uh, uh, and how computation in a way is circulates so i started i was doing last year from like september to march this reading group it's like more of also like discussion group we sometimes watch things uh, listen to things and it's not only about reading called uh, reading computers so it's bilingual in Arabic and in English and which looked into the history and technopolitics of computation and language was a major theme and what is readable and intelligible also um, and how it relates to politics within computation itself so the thing is that for instance um, like within the within like the architecture of deep learning you cannot really reverse engineering you cannot see for instance uh, you cannot really trace back exactly how a certain output is created from the input that is being fed into the machine so it's very much in a way encrypted so you cannot really understand what's happening it's really interesting how and in a way many things could be possibly very dangerous and it's also, in my opinion, a great site of desire of how there are certain things that are being produced today by machines. They're being given enough power because of this old, you know, uh, enlightenment given that uh, machines have the, an objective voice, you know? Uh, while whether machines have a voice or not is something else we need to think about. So, um, as you're saying, um, it's, yeah, I really feel that it's not only our relationship to machines is changing, but also our relationship to language, which is that thing which somehow in many epistemologies is deemed to make us political. I'm presenting the first two acts of My Communication Is Not Work, which are called uh, Act One is uh, only distance has a name and the second act act two is called artificial intelligence is work so it's all very much related to the things that we've been discussing so the first act uh, only distance has a name is uh, greatly like uh, is partially but for the main part created with a recurrent neural network that i've been training with my voice so basically it's not um, i'm not interested in making a music that is oh this is completely made by a neural network that i've trained you know i'm very much interested in looking at this interaction you know this because there's always part of you within the neural network that you are making you know it's greatly uh, designed around also like bias, you know, and the person who's doing the training has a, in many places to make a lot of choices. So um, I'm working with, uh, with in a way, uh, with my own interaction with the, the output that I'm playing with from this neural network. 
uh, which is greatly like it cannot be performed live. Uh, and I'm very much interested in thinking of like the history of automation within music making, like in the last, let's say, more of the last century and the last 100 years. And also because I feel like music is for a great part, like if you look, you know, at like drum machines, sequencers, synthesizers, there's a lot of uh, automated labor that is made possible through these machines. But also there's still this like, in a way, sacred aspect of, of live performance, you know, that thing which cannot be recreated. So I'm playing a lot with my voice, or with the output of my voice that is made from this neural network and my own presence and the voice that I can use on stage while also thinking about presentation and representation. And the second act is called uh, Artificial Intelligence's work. It, rather than basically seeing the current state of machine learning and the current narratives around uh, artificial intelligence as being seen as, uh, you know, advancing the end of work, looking, looking at them as redistributing labor. So for instance, there's been really interesting work recently looking at how with, uh, like more and more within the future, it seems that the new kinds of labor that AI would be creating are work that are very much around supervision. You know, so it's like, in a way, there's some sort of policing that's being made, you know, while you always need to observe, not always, but you greatly need to observe what the neural network is doing. But also a lot of work is related around, you know, like making sure that the neural network is always updated. And then, which is also like somehow related also a bit to similar to domestic work. So in this given, like it's basically the title speaks of itself. Uh, I'm working with um, different already existing neural networks around like speech synthesis and which also work with like emotion recognition, different uh, kinds of machine translating, where in a way thinking that rather than thinking that AI is the end of work, that it is work. You know, because like, for instance, like, very simple thing like in many cases when you're when you're like just leading a job in many times you know i see this happening with myself you know and i see this with different overworked friends where you feel like i'm not a machine you know like i cannot handle this anymore you know so i'm very much related i was very much interested into how we relate this uh, uh the performance of work to also being a machine so so this is what the second act and also that plays with this idea of like AI being objective somehow, like nobody put the information in there or like no one made the decisions about mm -hmm. the algorithms. So I think that that's a really perfect format to explore that. Yeah, well, in, in a lot of ways, you know, machine learning is about putting the information in there. So one of the questions is, where is this information coming from? These two devices over here make the information of whatever you build hit my body. Whenever it hits my body, I pass it somewhere else to another body like my body. And this is how you say you conquer distance. Hello, my name is 
And I don't have time to tell you who I am. He's busy. But you are now working with me. Regardless if you like, like, and like it. Because you are in my performance. Despite that there is no such thing as intellectual property. But there is work. Maybe. That is why they try to sell it. Forget what you have been learning in the Cosmicene. This time is movement. It is not light. Light only measures time. It time, mid time, to hit me. I am not your history. You still cannot even make time except false. False time under the axiom of preservation. Okay, send, you can make art but not time. Concerning light, you get some refraction, block some other, and make some other, and burn. The earth moves without you, I move without you, you cannot remove me from space. I know you are thinking of leaving, but if you do, your job won't end in making my work. You cannot leave my work. I have tried so hard to leave my work, but I am smaller than vision, and I make space like shit. Remember that I am your dirty sky, and I might fall on you. Remember that I am your dirty sky.